He also later exclaims, How sweet are your words to my taste. They're sweeter than honey to my mouth. Well, last week we considered verses 105 to 112, and we saw how the psalmist gave special attention to how he lived out his life in a way that was pleasing to God. He spoke of the word of God as being a lamp to his feet and a light to his path. He really needed that. I mean, he was living in a time of great moral darkness, just like we are. And what you need most in great darkness is light you can depend on. Well, the light spoken of here was like a floodlight. There's a couple different applications here. And the floodlight really gives us a broader view of the path. You can see further down the road. You can see the holes. You can see the trees. You can see the, the barriers, whatever it might be. You can see a, a, you have a, a greater view. Well, this speaks of the need, I think, of, ha- of why we need to have a biblical worldview that is kind of broad as far as we think about life. We all have just a desperate need to know who God is. We need to know the scriptures are authoritative and can be trusted. We need to know our God as the creator, as our creator. We need to recognize our own sin. We also need to recognize that God the Son, Jesus Christ, paid the price for our sin and earned salvation in his death and resurrection. We need to know that by faith in Jesus Christ, we are forgiven and made right with God. That we have hope because of that, whether it's in life or whether it's in death. And so the word of God as a broad floodlight gives us important light as far as big, big picture worldview kind of things. But we also need the word of God as, as a more direct lamp, something like we might use a flashlight for. Because that comes in handy for every individual step that we have to take individual decisions, individual choices that we're faced with, and the scriptures give us guidance. So without the word of God as our light and as our lamp, then when we're living in darkness, we are just not going to make good decisions. We're just not. We're going to consistently make poor decisions, sometimes even decisions that have tremendously bad consequences. Well, in the stanza we're looking at today, The psalmist goes from talking about those practical kind of decisions and the light he needs on how to live out his faith in practical ways and dependence on the Lord. Now he's going to move toward talking about attitudes of his heart. So he talks about, for example, things that he hates. He's going to talk about things that he loves. He's going to talk about things that he fears. He's going to talk about what gives him hope more attitudes of the heart and all those things are just so important to life so let me read for you psalm 119 113 through 120 i hate those who are double-minded but i love your law you are my hiding place and my shield i wait for your word depart from me evildoers that i may observe the commandments of my god Sustain me according to your word that I may live, and do not let me be ashamed of my hope. Uphold me that I may be safe, that I may have regard for your statutes continually. You have rejected all those who wander from your statutes, for their deceitfulness is useless. You have removed all the wicked of the earth like dross, therefore I love your testimonies. My flesh trembles for fear of you, and I am afraid of your judgments.
We're going to consider these verses in three sections. Uh, First is verses 113 through 115. And there we see an exclamation of uh, ex- an explanation of how the things that the believer loves determines the things that he's going to hate. Second, in verses 116 to 117, we're reminded of how weak we are and how dependent we are on the Lord to regularly, consistently sustain us. And then the last three verses, in those verses, the psalm helps us with perspective in life to actually see the present but also eternal consequences for sin. He's going to talk a lot about God's justice there. So, first main point is this. We see that those who love the Lord and his word have a holy hatred for all that dishonors God. Hate is not something we generally associate with someone who is committed to the Lord. And this may sound strange to you, but there is a place for hate in the Christian life. Um, One of the things about going through the scriptures and just kind of expounding whatever's next, you sometimes run into verses that are a little uncomfortable and you think, oh, we're supposed to hate people? Most people aren't going to see that as one of their favorite Bible verses to memorize. But it does say that. Now, what we're not talking about is we're not hating based on bitterness, holding a grudge, something like that. We're not hating because of skin color, so we're not talking about any kind of racial bigotry or hate in that regard. So it would be helpful to actually consider a definition for hate. I've heard somebody say that in our culture, the big, the big um, struggle right now is who's defining the terms. Who's defining the terms? Whose definition is carrying the day? That is exactly right. One of my favorite books of all time is a dictionary. Not just any dictionary, but Noah Webster's 1828 dictionary. It's really a treasure. Um, And here's the beginning part of a definition, of Noah Webster's definition for hatred. Hatred is this, great dislike or aversion, hate, enmity. Hatred is an aversion to evil. That's a world change, that, that's a worldview changing definition. Hate is an aversion to evil. This begs the question, what do you mean by evil? No, Webster was a committed Christian man. His dictionary is full of scripture to help define words. So when Noah Webster speaks of evil, he is talking about whatever is opposed to the law of God. That's what's evil. This is the kind of hatred that the Bible talks about, as far as in a good sense. It's a great dislike. It's an aversion to all that is evil. Now, this in itself, just thinking about this definition, helps us to see what it's like to live in a culture that's full of moral darkness. In our culture, it's often true that things that are opposed to the law of God are things 
that are set up as being good things. Our culture says over and over in various ways that evil should be celebrated and embraced. And ironically, if a person is not willing to celebrate what is evil, what are they? A hater. Completely turn the word on his head. They're considered guilty of hate speech. If they dare to express an aversion to something that is evil according to the scriptures. The de well, whoever defines the term that's accepted is what carries the day. This is another huge reason that it's so important to have the word of God as a lamp to our feet and a light to our path. The world's definitions aren't going to give you a lot of light. They're going to lead, lead you off the deep end, off to the side. So we need the word of God to define for us what is evil. We need the word of God to define for us what hate really is. Otherwise, we're going to be deceived. So the hate that's spoken of in verse 113 is speaking of a dislike and aversion to what is evil. So here, again, here's what the verse says. I hate those who are double-minded, but I love your law. So from this verse, we see the next point in your outline. God gives believers a hatred for what is hypocritical and half-hearted because he's also given them a love for his holy law. You can see in that verse, those two things go together, a hatred and a love. So the psalmist has a great concern. I think even you could even say a fear of the powers of darkness and, it's, and their allies that are dominating the culture that he's in. Now, the word for double-minded can also be translated as hypocritical. Some of your versions are going to have some different words there. Hypocritical, it can speak of those who profess to hold the Christian faith, but their life shows that they're only half-hearted about it. It can speak of what is vain or what is empty, no real substance to it. So the first application the psalmist and we ourselves need to make here is to ourselves. In fact, some versions translate the first part of this verse as is simply, I hate vain thoughts. Jesus told us there's a place for making righteous judgments. But he also made it clear that before you take the log out of somebody else's eye, you need to make, I mean, the speck out of somebody else's eye, you need to make sure you take the log out of your own. So the first thing we have to do as believers, we have to think first about the vain, hypocritical, half-hearted thoughts and ideas or practices that we have ourselves. That's where it has to start. For example, how often do we think of situations from the viewpoint of personal pride? Our morally dark culture would say that's a virtue, but it isn't. Pride is a sin. It's a temptation that we all have to deal with on a regular basis. It's closely tied, of course, with self-centeredness. So pride and self-centeredness are vain thoughts. They lead us to follow our heart instead of following the Lord. They move us away from being humble 
Do we see that in our own lives? We need to say, I hate those kind of vain thoughts that I see in myself. Maybe it's the sin of being half-hearted in our walk with the Lord. We may follow the Lord only to the point that it's convenient. I would rather not think seriously about what counting the cost might really look like. Um, As I've thought through some of these things for myself, I hate to say this, but sometimes I think I would probably live a more consistent Christian life if I didn't have an iPhone. (laughs) Now, that's an exaggeration because the iPhone has been a big blessing in so many ways. And so I... And the problem really is not the iPhone. The problem is how I use it. I mean, I shudder to think how much time I waste. I mean, just literally waste on it when other things could have been done. Jeremiah was talking about what is one of the things that takes your appetite away. It's junk food. And there's so much junk food. (laughs) Down, 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 all the way down. I mean, that's me. Vain thoughts, vain, empty kind of things. There should be in us a holy hatred for hypocritical, half-hearted, vain things that characterize our lives. And then after that, after we learn to hate the half-heartedness in ourselves, there's a place to have a holy hatred for the hypocrisy we see in others as well. That in order for this hatred to be holy, it needs to be done in the, con- in the context of honoring the Lord. It's not done out of arrogance. Now you're back to vain thoughts. It's, 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 it's done out of honoring the Lord. Verse 113, the psalmist speaks of hating those who are double-minded in the context of his own love for God's law. So when he sees God's law being misrepresented, or ignored or twisted to actually approve something vulgar. He hates all that's involved with that. And the reason that he's that he's the reason is that he's zealous for the glory of God. God's honor is first and foremost in his life. And really, you can see this focus all the way through the we're all through the psalm, but we're just looking at this one stanza today. So. Verse 114, he exalts the Lord as his shield, as his hiding place. He waits in expectation for God's word. In verse 115, he speaks highly of the commandments of God. In verse 116, he speaks of being sustained by God's word. In verse 117, he speaks of having a continual regard for God's statutes. In the next verse, he speaks again of God's statutes. In verse 119, he speaks of his love for God's testimonies in the scriptures. In verse 120, he speaks reverently of God as the judge. You see kind of a theme here? His focus was the Lord. His focus is on honoring God first and foremost. So his holy hatred has nothing to do with some sort of personal bias or grudge or prejudice. Nothing like that is even involved here. It has everything to do with God's glory. He has a love for God's holy law. Therefore, he has a corresponding hatred for all that violates God's holy law in the culture in which he lives. I believe we should all have that kind of holy hatred. 
Well, as the psalmist continues to think about the moral darkness all around him, he prays this in verse 114. You are my, uh, sorry, yes, get ready to read one verse. You are my hiding place and my shield. I wait for your word. So from this verse, we see next that living in the midst of so many who embrace things that dishonor the Lord leads believers to trust in the Lord as their shelter and defense, as their shelter and defense. First off, the, the Lord is a shelter to us in regard to our own vain thoughts, looking at the verse before. I mean, he's a holy God. He's also the God of mercy and compassion. It's the Lord who provides forgiveness and salvation for sinners. Jesus Christ, the second person of the Trinity, promised Messiah, paid the price for our sin on the cross. That gives us hope. So when we are examining our own hearts for our sin, we go to him as our hiding place, and that includes forgiveness, getting things right with him, taking, taking care of those sins with the Lord. And because of what he has accomplished on our behalf, we, can, we know that we'll be received. Even as sinners, we are received in Christ. The Lord is also our hiding place when we see the threat of sin all around us. Isaiah 25, 4 says this of the Lord. It says, you have been a defense for the helpless, a defense for the needy in his distress, a refuge from the storm, a shade from the heat, for the breath of the ruthless is like a rainstorm against a wall. We know that we are weak and vulnerable, and the attacks of the ruthless are described as a driving rainstorm, but it won't break down the wall. That's because our Lord is our hiding place. Our confidence is in him. Jesus says, in me, you shall have peace. Be of good cheer. I have overcome the world. So he is our shelter. He will keep us. He's also our shield, which a shield is used more in defense. So fiery darts of temptation are thrown at us, but by the shield of faith, we're able to extinguish all those flaming missiles of the evil one. So our Lord will enable us to stand firm even when so many in the culture around us are actually against us. Then the psalmist makes a further request of the Lord in verse 115. He says, depart from me, evildoers, <clears throat> that I may observe the commandments of my God. So in this prayer, he's talking to the Lord, but he's actually addre directly addressing the evildoers. So in light of his holy hatred, for all that dishonors the Lord, he's calling on these people to stay away from him. His desire to honor the Lord was being hindered by them. Now, the principle that I think we can take from this for our own lives is, is, is this, this next point. Believers recognize that in order to actively follow God's commandments in their life, their closest friends cannot be people who pursue what is evil. <clears throat> The psalmist was fully committed to the Lord. There's no doubt about that. But he's also very much aware of how those who had rejected the Lord could still be an influence on him. He knew he was weak. He knew himself well enough to know that he was vulnerable. So he was not willing to take any chances here. There was nothing more important to him than his relationship with the Lord. 
and he's aware that close connections with people that he described as evildoers would be a strong temptation. He would be tempted to compromise his faith, so he knew he had to make a break. Now, this does not mean <coughs> that we should have no relationships with people who are not Christians. <coughs> in Colossians 4, verse 5, for example, we're told to walk in wisdom toward outsiders, redeeming the time. Let your words always be with grace, seasoned with salt, so that you will know how you should respond to each person. That's something every believer is called on to do. But we have to be wise and consider whether a friendship with another person is actually influencing us to compromise our faith. And if that's the case, we need to back off. We need to back away. As the psalmist says here, our goal is to observe the commandments of God. If a friendship with another person is not helping us do that, but turning us away from that, then we need to make a change. One application that I would encourage really all those who are single to make, and I know it sounds like a broken record because I say it all the time, and that's because I think it's a really big deal, is that as a single person, you should not be in a dating relationship. If you're a Christian, you should not be in a dating relationship with somebody who's not a Christian. Um, that's just basic. Um, I mean, there should be, I mean, I've said this before, there needs to be dating standards anyway that you've pulled out from Scripture. And top of the list, or close to the top, is you will only date those who are growing Christians. Um, and the reason I say this so much, I'm old enough now and have worked in youth ministry and worked with people long enough now to see people fail in this area over and over and over and over, and they wonder why everything, why they're having such a hard time. And they've, they break this over so many times. And you guys all know examples of that. If, if a non-Christian, if a Christian continues to date non-Christians, they're going to end up marrying a non-Christian. The Bible says do not be unequally yoked. Well, that's, a, well, that's an application from this verse. So from these first three verses, the psalmist tells us that those who love the Lord and his word will have a holy hatred for all that dishonors their Lord. That brings us to verses 116 and 117, which say, Sustain me according to your word that I may live, and do not let me be ashamed of my hope. Uphold me that I may be safe, that I may have regard for your statutes continually. So our second main point is this. When there is so much that dishonors the Lord around them, believers are well aware of their weaknesses and their need for the Lord to actively sustain them. So we see weakness at least hinted at in those first three verses. Well, here in verse 116 and 17, the psalmist makes it clear he knows he's going to need the Lord to sustain him. He's going to have to have the Lord to uphold him if he's going to make it through. Well, there, So there's two aspects of this request for God's help that I want to see here. The first one is this. Believers trust in the Lord to sustain their life, sustain their life, and grant them assurance that they can trust the promises of his word. In verse 116, the psalmist asks the Lord to sustain him according to his word that he may live. Now, on its most basic level, this is a reminder to us that it's God who very literally sustains our life. Um, when he ceases to sustain your life, you die. So as long as we live, to some degree or another, he's going to provide a beating heart. He's going to provide oxygen. 
He's going to provide lungs that can breathe in that oxygen. He's going to provide a brain as the control center of your physical body. He's going to provide the ability to move, to see, to, uh, to smell, to taste, the ability to digest the food that you eat. Um, God created you. He created me. And he's the one who sustains us. Um, he's determined how many days we will live. So until that day, he will sustain you in your life. And that basic awareness in itself is really a great help to remind us how dependent we are on the Lord. We, it, it's how much we exercise and how we eat are important things. But whether you live or die is up to him. <laughs> He's the one who is sustaining your life. But the psalmist has more than that in mind. He's speaking of his spiritual life, I think, first and foremost here. Because he asked the Lord to sustain him, not let him be ashamed of his hope. The psalmist's hope is in the Lord. He's in a place where the influence of evildoers is strong. He knows he's weak. He's holding on to the Lord. Uh, like I said, in our, in, our, in, our, in our country, he would probably be called a hater because he loved the law of God. But he understands he's in a hard place, in a difficult place. He has based his hope in the Lord and rejected what the evildoers are trying to force him to do. We might describe this hope really just from a phrase that we sang this morning together from uh, Solid Rock. We sang together, my hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness. I dare not trust the sweetest frame, but I wholly lean on Jesus' name. So our hope does not rest on the acceptance of the world, a world that's full of moral darkness. Our hope for salvation, for eternal life, is in Christ. Our hope for living a life that is pleasing to God in this culture is, again, in Christ. But once again, the psalmist knows himself well enough to know that he's weak. He's vulnerable to the pressure of the world. He's vulnerable to pride. He's vulnerable to fear. He's vulnerable to worry. And if he does not persevere in his hope in the word of the Lord, he's going to be shamed. People who trusted in him as an example are going to be let down because what they see. He will dishonor his Lord and Savior. Instead of his life being a testimony for the Lord, he will be modeling the idea that God and his word really can't be trusted. He will be ashamed of the hope that he had earlier spoke so confidently about. He says, don't let that happen to me. Keep my faith alive. So he wisely prays, Lord, sustain me according to your word that I may live and do not let me be ashamed of my hope. So I don't care how strong, how mature you are in your faith. You never get to the place that you do not need the Lord to sustain you. We all need that all the time. The second request for God's help is this. Believers know that they can never honor the Lord without his divine assistance, his divine assistance every single day. So we not only need assurance from God that we can trust the promises of his word, we also need his divine assistance 
The word for uphold me in verse 117 can be translated as sustain, support, establish, strengthen, or comfort. So he needs divine assistance to be safe or to be delivered. And this seems to be especially focused on the need to be delivered from the evil threats he has to deal with every day. It's another way of asking the Lord to keep his faith alive, to keep his faith intact. It reminds me really of Jude 24, which speaks of the Lord as the one who will keep us. It says he will keep us from stumbling and ultimately make us to stand in the presence of his glory, blameless with great joy. So it's our Lord who keeps us from falling into unbelief. He, keeps, he does keep our faith alive in the midst of great threats. One thing I think is helpful to think about here. I mean, as Christians, we sense, we can have an awareness of this keeping every day. Let me give you some examples. There is going to be times during the day that you're going to be reminded to pray. Lord, help me with this. Lord, help them. That looks like it might be a hard situation they're in. Just little prompts that come through your mind. I need to pray about this. We're given prompts to give thanks. Lord, thank you for this. Thank you for them. Thank you for that situation. Thank you for what? The, thank you for that sunset. Thank you. Just whatever. There's all kinds of things that just kind of pop in our heads to give thanks. We're reminded at times we, God gives us a desire to read the scripture. Those desires come. We're given understanding of some of the things that we read or maybe bring, bring to mind a passage of scripture that we're already pretty familiar with. We're reminded of how we can pray those scriptures for ourselves and we can, how can pray those scriptures for other people, how we can pray those scriptures for our family, for our church, for our nation, for the nations of the world. Sometimes as we go through the day, we're convicted of sin. We said something we shouldn't have said. We thought something we shouldn't have thought. We looked at something we shouldn't have looked at. We're convicted of sin. And we're inclined soon after that to confess our sin to the Lord and ask for forgiveness. We might be reminded of a hymn or a spiritual song or a psalm that you know or a part of it. Maybe you'll sing it out loud. Maybe you won't. But you may be reminded of that phrase, and again, use it to give thanks to the Lord. All those are just simple little examples of the Lord sustaining and upholding your faith. He's keeping it going. If that's not happening to you in any sense of the word, there's a problem. You need to think about it. Is the, are there things, is the Lord continuing to work? And those the things I mentioned were very small little things. That, that kind of thing is, are some practical examples of how the Lord gives us his divine assistance to keep our faith alive. So when there's so much that dishonors the Lord around us, we are well aware of our weakness and our need for the Lord to actively sustain our faith. Third point. Believers are helped with their perspective on life when they remember that since God is just, there are both present and eternal consequences for sin. This is verses 18 to, uh, 118 to 120. Let's just look at verse 118 right now. 
You have rejected all those who wander from your statutes, for their deceitfulness is useless. Now, it's easy to look around and see people who are living as enemies of God, living in unbelief, doing whatever they want with little or no consequences. Oftentimes, they're doing better than we are in a lot of different areas. Uh, Sometimes they really seem to have the upper hand, actually, in the culture. Well, this verse reminds us of a very sober but important truth, and that's this. The truth is that all who turn aside from God's ways are rejected by the Lord. They are only fooling themselves. So walk with the Lord in integrity. So these are described as people who have wandered from God's statutes. Now, sometimes when we think of wander, we think of somebody who's just not thinking. And it's kind of next thing you know, there's some place that they didn't know where they're going to be. That's not what this kind of wander is. This is the idea of intentionally going astray. This is the idea of, of purposefully deviating from whatever God's standard of right and wrong is, from his standard of what is true. These are not people who are sinning by accident. They're doing it on purpose. Well, God's response is that he has rejected them, all of them. God's rejection may not appear obvious to us or even to them, but it's true nonetheless. And it's a fearful thing to be out and out rejected by the one true God. But the psalmist indicates that those who have rejected the Lord think everything is fine, but they're wrong. Their deceitfulness is useless. So they think things are okay. They may seek to twist God's God's lawful standards to their own liking, but they failed. They are only fooling themselves. And when they stand before the Lord, it's going to be a rude awakening for sure. They thought they had it all figured out. They thought they explained away those verses, that they didn't apply to them. They're going to find out that we're wrong. They were wrong. That should encourage us. It should encourage us to walk with the Lord in integrity. This should help us with our perspective of what's going on. True Christians may very well be in the minority, but we trust the Lord to sustain us. We are trusting him to uphold us, to keep our faith alive. And we use this as a warning, as an encouragement to to walk with the Lord with integrity ourselves. I think that's part of what one reason he, he says this. Look at verse 119 now. You have removed all the wicked of the earth like dross. Therefore, I love your testimonies. So the psalmist continues to speak of those who have turned aside from the Lord. And now he says this. Next point. If they will not repent, God will cast aside the wicked of the earth like rubbish. So grow in your love for his testimonies. God is just. But thank the Lord, he's also merciful. In his mercy, he has provided salvation for sinners who are intentionally turning their back on him. He has provided salvation for sinners through faith in Jesus Christ as Savior and Lord. Just a glorious mercy. But if they will not repent, if a person insists on going their own way and will not receive Jesus Christ as Savior and Lord, The God of perfect justice, it says here, will cast them aside. 
he will treat them like dross. Dross is the, the waste that comes when a, when a metal is being purified. There's no use for it. It's trash. So God treats the wicked of the earth like rubbish. Another verse you may not want to put on your Facebook page. Judgment is real. I mean, verse 119 is written as if God has already removed the wicked of the earth like dross. And it's written that way to show it's a sure thing. It's not just, let's see what's going to happen here. We know what's going to happen. It's a sure thing. It's absolute true. So judgment is real. And it's a sober truth that, again, we should even be able to prosper from and say, Lord, help me to be consistent in your testimonies. I know people are purposely going astray and that they're not repeating and so forth. And I see that. I know that's a reality. But, Lord, help me to learn from that, that I would not go that direction. And, and we also know, I mean, well, like I said, judgment is real. Sometimes God removes from the earth and this life. But whether it's in this life or not, there's going to be a day of judgment. Thank God he's a God of great patience. He gives time to repent. But there'll come a time where those who would not repent will be cast aside like garbage on trash day. The last word on God's justice is verse 120. My flesh trembles for fear of you, and I'm afraid of your judgments. So our final point is this. Sober thought on the certain judgments of God calls even believers to tremble. So grow in the fear of the Lord. There is a terror in God's judgments that really just should not be watered down. The psalmist speaks of his flesh bristling up. can be translated as his flesh creeping or his hair standing on end or his flesh literally uh, trembling or shuddering. That's the picture you get here. And the reason for that is because the psalmist has been thinking carefully about the terrifying subject of God's judgment. He's thinking about what happens when God rejects those who have gone astray from God's statutes. He's pondering what it will be like when God removes the wicked of the earth like dross. He's pondering that. It's not just words he put down on paper. He's really thinking about it. And it's bothering him a lot. It's making him really afraid. In Revelation 6, the coming of the Lord is described in some of the most vivid ways um, in Scripture. The wicked of the earth are described, of, uh, described as hiding in caves and rocks, and they say to the mountains and the rocks, Fall on us, hide us from the presence of him who sits on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb. For the great day of his wrath has come, and who is able to stand? They would rather be crushed by rocks than have to stand and face the wrath of the Lamb. As believers, we are delivered from the wrath of God through the death of Christ. He suffered the wrath on the cross that each of us deserve. But there is a place for pondering how awful it will be for those who reject Christ. It's meant to help us grow in our concern for them, but help us to grow in our own fear of the Lord. Charles Bridges made this observation. 
several things he said along this line, but I'll just pick this one sentence. He says, cherish that holy reverential fear of the character and judgments of God, which will form your most effectual safeguard, your most effectual safeguard from presumptuous sins. Presumptuous sins are those sins that we presume we can get away with and there won't be any consequences. It's something that even as believers, we have to be aware of that. We want to move and run away from presumptuous sins. And pondering the fearful judgments of God is an antidote to taking sin lightly. So God calls us to live with a holy hatred that consists in an aversion of all that is evil. We're to grow in our love for God and for his word, and we're to grow in faith as we also grow in the fear of the Lord. Lord, we do thank you for your word. Sometimes you inspire these people to write things that are really kind of, like how can I say, just kind of take, kind of give you such encouragement. And then there's others that just kind of make you feel really sober. Um, we need both. So, Lord, I thank you for this passage that the author wrote, and it really causes us to have soberness. As we think about the sin in our culture, as we think about the sin in our own hearts that we know is very real, as we think about how weak we are and how much we need you to uphold us, as we think about judgment, that judgment is a real thing, and it should cause us to tremble, but that we should it should cause us to especially be thankful for Christ, but also to help us to turn away from sin. So, Lord, we just ask for your help that you would apply these things in our own life. Now, if you're one who's never put your faith in Christ, <laughs> this passage says judgment is real for everyone who will not receive Christ. But you have hope, and the hope is Christ. And I would invite you prayer life, this will be a way to start. Lord, I realize that I am sinful. I realize that I have not honored you in my life in so many ways. And I am one of those people that's under judgment. But I thank you for what Jesus Christ has done on my behalf. I want to receive him as my Savior. I want to receive him as the Lord of my life. If you want to talk in more detail about that commitment, you can make a note in your tear-off or those who are watching online can reach out to us through the website. It is in the name of Christ that we pray. Amen.